Great. Okay. Tinakoto, good evening. Welcome to our spring webinar tonight, focusing on managing toxidromes. Our session is run by the University of Otago section of Rural Health in conjunction with the Division of Rural Hospital Medicine of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practice. My name is Lucinda Thatcher, and I'd like to introduce Bill Boroff, who is our medical toxicologist and an emergency physician based in Dunedin. He has very recently moved to New Zealand to work at the New Zealand National Poison Centre and also as a ED physician in Dunedin Hospital. Thank you very much for your time and your expertise this evening. It is very, very much appreciated. And so I will hand over to you and I'll just quickly introduce you to Justin, who's one of our rural hospital medicine specialists who's going to help us this evening. The floor is yours, Bill. Wonderful, Welcome, wonderful. Tine Koto. Koto, am I saying it right? I'm still learning. You nailed uh, it. Fabulous. Yep, Thank you, guys. <laughs> so, there is nothing similar to Maori in North America there, so I'm learning it from scratch. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Like Lucinda said, I'm just recently out here from Colorado in the United States, and before I left, was very interested in how to try to get bedside delivery of toxicology expertise into some very rural, very austere environments in the U.S., especially in the central U.S., which sometimes there isn't a hospital for three or four hours by plane. I know rural medicine is a little bit different out here, but medicine in general is different out here. So I apologize if I don't have a firm understanding of some of the idiosyncrasies here, but I'm very happy to learn from you guys as we talk about all of this. So we're going to talk about the sort of rural-based or focused management of toxicologic cases, focusing on toxidromes, which is going to be an extension from a prior talk that Adam had given. Um, one thing, there will be some stopping points uh, naturally through the course of this, but at any point in time, anyone has any questions, by all means, raise your hand. I like to keep this nice and loose and open and go from there. People do have questions, just put them in the chat. The talk's quite nicely broken up into cases, so there is quite natural points at which point I will ask Justin to relay any questions to you, Bill. So Super. we'll go that way. Very good. Perfect. Wonderful. Sounds good. So general objectives, we're going to do a very brief sort of one-liner review on the toxidromes to build off of what the, the previous talk was. We're going to also briefly talk about the clinical tox toolkit that I think is important in a resource critical environment, and then really dive into the management strategies for these specific toxidromes, uh, make it case-based, talk about how this sort of changes from a resource-limited environment, and then have some discussion regarding transfer considerations. And then finally, a quick bit of sort of what not to do for some of these patients, something to stick in the back of your mind as you're managing these folks. One caveat to say is there are many different ways of skinning a toxic cat, and the management strategies described here and for rural settings may differ a little bit in either sequence or approach than typical urban or resource-rich environments. And so just keep that in mind if you're sort of cross-referencing this talk with stuff that's on toxins, things may be a little bit out of sequence, mostly due to changes in what's available. So just note that as we're going through all of this. So a quick review, a toxidrome, what is a toxidrome? Recall that it is the sort of combination of a toxic exposure and a syndrome, a syndrome being a constellation of signs and symptoms. And so the combination of those two, you have a constellation of signs and symptoms related to some toxic exposure, therefore you have a toxidrome. 
And these things are characteristic, when we talk about a toxidrome, characteristic of an agent class itself, not just a specific drug, but a whole group of different drugs. Because there's a litany of other things that are out there that have their own specific effects, but it's really very efficient, I think, to talk to the major ones in this approach. And it's important to note that these toxidromes are typically based off of neurochemistry and receptor physiology and ways that neurotransmitters are modulated in their reuptake or their release or their binding or how those neurotransmitters or the toxicants can affect ion channel opening or closing. And the important thing to note is that these toxidromes, symptoms that come with this may not necessarily be extensions of the drug itself or the typical side effects that you think of for a drug. In particular, or I guess, for instance, think about an antihistamine, a first-generation antihistamine. If you take you know, a couple of doses of that, you're going to hopefully get sleepy and fall asleep. But if you take like 30 doses of that, you're going to have the opposite and not just be sleepy, but be crazy and hallucinate and all sorts of stuff like that. So neither an ex- designed drug effect nor a typical side effect that comes from that. So just a couple of quick things. So for that, a toxidrome often is the thing that tells the story as to what's going on. And this is particularly important when someone comes in with signs or symptoms of something and gives you a bit of history that may not fit or may be misleading. And so oftentimes we'll have people that will come in that look one way and we get a story that's a totally different way from family or bystanders. And so really the toxidrome itself is what tells the story. And maybe the suspicion comes from the history, but the history, as you probably know, is not a reliable sort of thing. So as we go through the toxidromes, we can do quick one-liners on these and talk also about the neurotransmitters that are involved. So a sympathomimetic means that it mimics your sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight discharge. And so these folks are gonna come in sweaty. They're gonna look like they either ran away or are ready to fight and have all of those sort of hyperadrenergic kind of features. And so that is your sympathomimetic toxidrome. Then we've got the two polar opposites here. You either have your anticholinergic or your cholinergic toxidromes. So anticholinergics, essentially there's not enough acetylcholine, that neurotransmitter, binding to the appropriate receptors. And so these guys end up having this very dry, hot, shaky, hallucinating kind of appearance to them before they seize, and they might do that. And then on the converse, cholinergic toxicity is where you have way too much acetylcholine that's available to bind to the receptors. And so it's going to do the opposite of an anticholinergic thing. So if you can't remember which one's which, just know which one one of them is and know that the other is the opposite of it. So a cholinergic crisis then is going to be someone that is wet, super wet right there. They've got uh, bronchorrhea, rhinorrhea, I don't know, otorrhea maybe, and they're bradycardic, and you know, then they also seize. So that's going to be your anticholinergic and cholinergic friends. And then we switch over to the antipsychotics and antidepressants. So if you have your serotonergic syndrome, then as the name sort of implies, that's too much serotonin that's floating around, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter. And these folks are going to be hot and sweaty and sort of look like a sympathomimetic individual, but that's where that history might come into play a little bit. The exam on these guys can be particularly interesting in so much as they are very clonus-y. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it. 
where they just by being startled will jump and have you know clonic sort of movements not totally a seizure but definitely look very 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 jumpy and they'll be altered and it may very well be unstable in that sort of instance and so that's the serotonergic toxidrome and then its evil cousin is the neuroleptic malignant syndrome or nms and these folks are also going to be hot and sweaty but it's because of too little dopamine that's in their system. And instead of them being all excitatory and jumpy, like someone with a serotonin syndrome, they are instead going to be rigid. So think about like the world's most out of control Parkinsonian patient, right? To where they just have no dopamine that's available in the receptors. And so they are super rigid and they are going to have cogwheeling in their extremities, but they're not going to be having clonus or necessarily hyperreflexia. And they most certainly are going to be unstable. There's no question, right? So serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic syndrome, those guys sort of are similar friends there. There's a couple of other toxidromes that I don't think we really need to spend a whole lot of time on in this. Right, the sedative hypnotic toxidrome, that's way too much GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. These guys are gonna sleep and maybe stop breathing, but that's about it. And then the opioid toxidrome, which is its own thing, which is way too much binding to the mu receptors. I don't know how much of that is as big of a deal out here as it is in the US because it's killed 100,000 some odd people in the US in the past couple of years, but we're very familiar with this stuff. But the good news is generally it's pretty easy to approach. They have pinpoint pupils and they're not breathing. You give them Narcan and they start breathing. Um, and so not too much that we're going to talk about that. And then also withdrawal syndromes are technically, you could put them into a camp of a toxidrome because they are an agent-specific effect or a specific effect that comes within a class, but they're the opposite of the intoxication syndrome. So when we talk about opioid withdrawal or GABA withdrawal, things like that. So the management of those isn't all that challenging to some degree, right? If they are withdrawing from a thing, give them that thing, and then maybe they get better. Now, obviously that's really putting it into a pinhole there, but um, not something to waste too much time on in this talk. And then finally, there is this sort of very evil thing that's not really a toxidrome because it doesn't have a constellation of signs and symptoms, but really is still very important to talk about, I think, from a rural health perspective. So I'm going to throw it in there, and it's your cardioactive agents, so beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. And these guys, as you can imagine, are going to be hypotensive, they're going to be bradycardic, and they might be hyperglycemic. And we'll talk about why that is when we get to that section. Cool. So let's talk about the clinical toolkit, which is to say, this is not a defined sort of thing, but more the things that if I was going out into a hospital in the middle of nowhere and was able to pick off of a menu what I wanted, these would be the bare minimum things that I'd want. So IVs, obviously, fluids, some sort of telemetry monitor, an ECG machine, airway tools, an NG tube, and paralytics. We'll talk about the paralytics in a bit as to why that's, I think, particularly important to make sure you have and are familiar with in this setting. And then finally, vasopressors. And really, if I could only choose one, it would be something that contained adrenaline, whether it's noradrenaline or regular adrenaline, whatever works. You don't need all the other fancy vasopressors that are out there. You can get by very well with these vasopressors alone and in really high doses. And then if you wanted to get some sort of very specific talks type stuff to throw in your toolkit, 
there's always the big four that we like to have. So benzos, bicarb, and NAC, and then Narcan on top of that. So it's funny. My kids will occasionally listen to my phone calls when I'm on call. And when I'm off, they'll sort of sing around benzos, bicarb, NAC, benzos, bicarb, NAC, because they know that that's like a common thing that I'm always talking about. So they're also a bunch of cheeky little monkeys. So um and then the decon thing, that's also an important thing to have in your toolkit. Activated charcoal is always a nice thing to have. And it's one of those things that has probably more utility than we give it credit for. And the pendulum does like to swing back and forth with respect to when it's in vogue and when it isn't. I will tell you that the pendulum is sort of in mid-swing at this point in time. And in my opinion, when you're in a sort of austere environment or resource-poor environment, that's when you reach for things that maybe people in urban environments are poo-pooing a little bit just because you got a limited toolkit. So, and then to go along with that, if you're not giving them charcoal or if you are, then you may find a reason to do whole bowel irrigation. So having a big old jug of clean prep is also a helpful thing. And then always remembering surface decontamination, especially if you're in a rural environment when people can come in and be ill because of the things that are on their skin. You want to get it off of their skin so that they don't stay ill and that so you don't get ill ultimately. And so that's always a key point here. And then finally, antidotes. There's a whole list of antidotes that one could come up with that's important. The National Poison Center is in the process of codifying a minimal antidote stocking list for all hospitals, rural and otherwise, that we are working on getting sort of final stakeholder input on. And that should be coming out soon. But you can probably imagine the vast majority of what the antidotes are should be covered by this talk here, if they exist in New Zealand, which I'm learning not all of them necessarily do. And then the final thing to talk about is the sort of line in the sand, the biggest challenge to make a determination of when to transfer someone. And in the US, this was of particular interest. And I don't know how it is out here. But when you took a patient out of a rural setting in the States, you lose the money for that patient. And the rural settings really depended upon governmental funding to keep themselves open as it was. And so there was always this sort of balance of who can we maybe keep here that might need a little extra effort to work on, but ultimately can stay here and recover pretty quickly that we don't have to then take a helicopter out of service to ship to a different site, right? And so that's that gray zone that you have to keep into consideration your resources, the staffing, and the sort of general direction that a lot of these exposures will go. And I think it's important to note that most toxicologic ingestions, for the most part, are fairly time-limited in their effect, unless you're talking about an extended release preparation. So, you know, 48 hours for the most part is what you're going to see for mild to moderate ingestions with a big asterisk on that there. And so it may be very tenable for them to stay sort of where they're at potentially. So we'll go through some of the transfer decisions and some of the decision-making around that as we go through this. I think you'll find that's one thing you'll enjoy about New Zealand is you don't have to factor in that sort of funding issue in terms of retaining <laughs> patients or not. So where do we go next? Oh, yeah. Oh, let's do some cases. And this is where audience participation is super appreciated. So first case here, as you see it, a 24-year-old female coming in altered after an argument was dropped off by your friends and suspected that she ingested something. They just sort of dropped her off and kept driving because they didn't want to get in trouble as you do. And so there's really no history that's available. Vital signs look like this. She's tacky as can be. 
mildly hypertensive, uh, breathing a touch on the fast side, saturating well, and is definitely hot. 39.5 is her temperature. And her exam, she's very agitated. Her speech is trailing off. Her pupils are dilated. I mean, like really dilated, like you see in this picture. Flush skin, dry axilla. That's the toxicologist handshake. Stick your bare hand in their bare armpit and see what comes out. She did mark clonus just at the ankles, though, and a palpable bladder with no bowels. So based on everything, I see someone's jumping in on this. What's everyone think? Toxidrome. Looks like Natasha called it anticholinergic. That is correct. Well done. Very good. So now what do we do with this person? That's the bigger question. Who wants this person in their ED? I would say, given all of the possibilities, this person's not a bad one to have in your ED, right? You can generally manage them. However, that's with a caveat. My favorite antidote in all toxicology is Pfizer-Stigmine. So much so that I've written book chapters on this and I've done deeper dives than anyone should ever do on any sort of drug. The challenge is this is in shortage in the US and it doesn't even exist here in New Zealand, which is a real bummer because it is the exact thing that you need that works on a receptor level to stop this toxidrome and it reverses it like Narcan reverses opioids and it is fabulous and it can make your life super easy. So much so that we're still working with Pharmac to try to get it, even though there's no supply for it, just so that it's available when it does develop in supply. So that's a really helpful thing to have is that failing in that you can do the thing that everyone has been doing for the past few decades because they were afraid of Pfizer-Stigmine and that's give benzodiazepines. And you essentially just titrate those benzodiazepines as needed. And when I say titrate as needed, I'm talking big doses. We don't start with like one milligram of midazolam or, you know, half a milligram of Ativan. It's 10 of Valium right up front, right? And titrate, titrate that as needed. So that's going to help with the agitation principally, right? But the other thing that you have to understand is that these folks can be very, very hyperthermic and they can't regulate their own temperature very well because they're not sweating, part of the anticholinergic features, right? And so that temperature, which is driven mostly by muscular contraction agitation has no way to be cooled. And so your benzos are gonna be the thing to try to help chill out that agitation and mellow them out and hopefully decrease some of that muscle tone that they have. But if you're getting to the point where you're giving them huge doses of benzos and are not having adequate control and they're still hyperthermic, then that's when you intubate and paralyze and then potentially even actively cool, right? And so that's where these paralytics are starting to already show up. These guys have significant risk of rhabdomyolysis. And so that's another reason to really make sure you're driving their agitation down. And then they also run the risk of seizures. And there's a theme that's already showing up. The answer to that is benzos and more benzos and all the benzos, right? Anti-epileptics, giving them Keppra, giving them, you know, phenytoin, it doesn't do anything. Don't waste your time on that. Cool. And then finally, the cardiac management comes into play just because they're running hot uh, and getting real hot and getting very acidemic. They can end up becoming hypotensive just because everything's starting to break down at that point in time, if not controlled quickly and aggressively. Most people can tolerate tachycardia, and that's fine. And to some degree, that's fairly protective. But the one thing that's a little on the outside here that has to be paid attention to is what their QRS is doing. And the reason for that is a lot of the agents that people can overdose on that are antihistamines that will cause anticholinergic toxicity have a pseudo-tricyclic structure to them. 
and can actually cause sodium channel blockade, which can put them at particular risk for ventricular arrhythmias, right? And so you get an EKG on someone that looks like this, who's coming in altered in this toxidrome with a wide QRS of 135 milliseconds. And this is a patient that has two issues now going on. Not only are they anticholinergic, but they're also sodium channel blocked. And so in addition to managing them with all of the benzos, this is when the bicarb, the toxicologist's second favorite drug, comes into play. And you're given the bicarb not because of the acidemia necessarily, but because it comes with a ton of sodium. And so you can give them repeated doses, 100 mLs at a time of 8.4% sodium bicarb, and theoretically narrow the EKG down from this to something much prettier like this. Cool? How quickly would you expect that result to happen? It's going to depend on the patient and the severity of things, but within you know minutes of pushing the bicarb. And so I'll wheel the EKG machine in there in a box full of bicarb vials, and I'll just administer the bicarb until that and watch that QRS narrow down. So on the order of a few minutes, which is pretty cool, right? Hmm. Might wind back out again, uh, but that's okay. You just give more and it goes back down. Cool. Mm -hmm. uh, any other questions that people have about that natural stopping point? Uh, I just had a quick question, Bill. Go so for your recommendation was 100 mils of 8.4% and mm -hmm. just watch the QRS. Uh, is that right? You got it. Yep, okay. absolutely. And, and what's your threshold for giving bicarb? Is it any time the QRS is wide at all? Are you waiting until it gets up around 160 or you just, what, when are you sort of pulling the trigger on bicarb? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's going to depend particularly on which agent is causing the widening there. So if it's a tricyclic antidepressant, which also causes anticholinergic toxicity, the threshold to treat is much lower than if it's uh, simple like diphenhydramine, you know, or something like that, right? My usual threshold when I'm talking to folks is if they have evidence of hemodynamic uh, instability and they've got a QRS greater than 120 milliseconds, that's when I go for the bicarb at that point. Yeah. What's nice is that it includes TCAs and non-TCAs. It, it makes it simpler. There may not be nearly as high of a need to be so aggressive with like a diphenhydramine or an orphenadrine um, QRS widening as it is with a TCA. But if you don't know what it is, just if it's over 120, just give the bicarbon arrow down. And I don't have a specific dose necessarily. I see someone typed here one to two millimoles per kilogram. That's fine. In the States, we have pre-filled bicarb amps that are 50 milliequivalents per amp. And I just bring in a box of 10 and we'll just push the amps until things narrow down. I guess it's a yeah. dirty way of doing it, but it works. <laughs> That's really helpful. Thank you. I was kind of under the impression that, you know, I guess so much of the time we've presented with a patient with a, either undifferentiated or polypharmacy overdose. So we don't actually know what the agent is, and we're just trying to identify red flags, and obviously a wide QRS is pretty concerning, but I was also under the impression that sodium bicarb is not necessarily completely benign. What are you, what's your threshold for, are you just given one or two doses and watching for the QRS to widen, or, and where are you starting to be concerned about giving too much 
Sodium. Yeah, it's a very good question. There could be a whole lecture just on sodium channel blockers as it is. Um, uh, two things to sort of keep in mind. Firstly, have to be mindful of what a sort of normal QRS is and the fact that there can be some variability in the population and a normal QRS can range anywhere from 86 to 117 milliseconds or so. And so that's why I typically choose the 120 as my personal threshold. That'll vary in the literature, but the last thing you want to do is sit there and try to hammer someone away with bicarb when they're just sitting at their normal QRS interval. Um, so, uh, and so my other sort of thought is if I haven't seen a response to QRS narrowing after 400 um, milli, let me make sure I'm doing my math, 50 to, to, to 200 milli equivalents of bicarb that I'm thinking about maybe switching gears and seeing if there's something else that may be going on, number one. If they're really, really, really wide, that it may take much more to get them down, but you should at least see some degree of narrowing, maybe not normalization. But then at that point in time, it's important to start watching their pH and their serum sodium. What's fun is that these people can tolerate, um, for severe sodium channel blockades, they can tolerate enormous doses of sodium and somehow have very little change in their serum sodium. I don't know why, it's weird, I don't get it. But their pH certainly will get up fairly quickly. And so the ceiling for that pH is 7.5 and the ceiling for your sodium is 155. So thank you. Uh, yeah, no problem. Cool. So what are we not going to do with these guys? Firstly, anyone that's coming in with some sort of agitated, altered mental status from a toxic ingestion, I typically recommend avoiding antipsychotics and neuroleptics period, right? How to repair it all if it's an antihistamine or an anticholinergic thing, those have antihistamine effects and so they can worsen the toxidrome. So that's not good. Or if you misdiagnose it and it's actually NMS, but just in the early phases, then you're certainly not helping by giving them more neuroleptics, right? And so olanzapine is another fun one. It technically can be helpful in serotonin syndrome, but it is super antihistaminic and anticholinergic and can also worsen things. So I generally avoid any antipsychotics and neuroleptics. You can give benzos to anything. They play nice in the sandbox and are very clean, relatively speaking. And then also don't forget to get an EKG. We just talked about that. And always, this goes for everything. Don't forget non-tox etiologies potentially there as well. Cool. And now that magic decision to transfer, when should you be transferring an anticholinergic patient? So for the most part, mild to moderate folks generally are, I think, reasonably manageable, even in resource poor sort of environments, provided you've got enough staff that can sit there and sort of babysit this person. Because like I said, physostigmine is ideal because it just turns it off like that. And benzos are less ideal. And there can be some agitation that comes from too much benzos and things like that. So it can get a little tricky depending on your staff. Or if it's a really long acting agent like orphenadrine or olanzapine, then they may be that way for days. And in which case you might just kick them out to somewhere that so you free up a bed, right? Obviously, if they're going to be intubated, if they're having arrhythmia or a persistently wide QRS and you're having to give ridiculous amounts of bicarb and all of that sort of stuff, or the recalcitrantly hyperthermic, right? That person you kick out to a better place. Cool. All right. Thank you. Oh, the same is true for sympathomimetic patients. The same sort of deal. You're not going to give them physostigmine, but you're going to give them all the same sort of stuff. Uh, and so the same rules kind of apply to these guys.
Cool. All right. So case number two, let's talk about a four-year-old that was brought in, brought in by the parents, found to be drooling and wheezing, and as they like to do, decided to take a drink from a cup that was on the work table while the father was filling up a pump sprayer, right? Happens more often than we would like. So this is a four-year-old, has a heart rate of 60, a blood pressure of 70 over 40, respiratory rate in the 30s, hypoxic, but normothermic, and has an exam such as this, restless, pinpoint pupils, excessive tearing, drooling, coughing up foamy stuff, crackles everywhere, and has pooped himself. Poor kid. So what is this toxidrome? Daunting. Someone put it in the chat. Someone knows what this is. Everyone knows what this is. All right. Everyone. I put everyone to sleep already. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> so don't think so, Bill. Everyone's yeah, fearful is... of getting it wrong, aren't they? It's the wet one, <laughs> team. The wet one. This is, yeah. This is the, the, the wet, wet, wet seas kind of kid, right? So this is your cholinergic toxicrome <laughs> or your cholinergic toxicity, right? And so this is essentially you just have too much acetylcholine binding to the receptors. And what happens when acetylcholine binds the receptors? You get these effects, right? So the management for this is honestly easy to write, but hard to do. And the main thing is atropine and all of the atropine, tons and tons of atropine, right? And so you start with a big dose, give them two milligrams of atropine up front, and then you rapidly double that every five minutes targeting drying of secretions, a heart rate greater than 80, a blood pressure greater than 80, and theoretically, their pupil should start to widen out a little bit. You can throw an atropine infusion on these folks if you want, but the key to know is that high doses may very well be required in this. So in Sri Lanka, where people love to overdose on organophosphates, the mean atropine dose per patient in one reported large case series was 23 milligrams just to get them to the point of what we call atropinization, right? So I don't know, I, in the US, atropine comes in 0.5 milligram vials. I don't know what it does out here. I heard it's something equally arbitrary, like 0.6 milligrams. Do you know Justin off the top of your head? Yeah, 0.6. Yeah. 0.6, 0. 6. yeah. yeah. So, there we go. Super, who knows why, right? <laughs> it seems very arbitrary, but what that means is, you know, you're talking about what, 50 vials of atropine that you may need to get an individual to, to calm down, right? So that's a major, major limitation in a resource poor environment, right? If they have a seizure, diazepam, like everything, benzos, but big doses for this as well, 10 to 20 milligrams or so. And this is where the decon comes into play, right? Because you don't want someone coming into your ER that is covered in a bunch of organophosphate or carbamate, and then everyone else gets sick because now your whole ER is done, right? The question always exists, if someone drinks a bunch of this, should you drop an NG tube down to try to decontaminate them from the gut? And the answer is no. Organophosphate pots, insecticides or carbamates for that matter, get absorbed rapidly. And if you try to drop an NG tube and they start vomiting all that stuff out, well, now you've got an airborne event. And then you also have to figure out what you're going to do with all the stuff that you may get out into the suction container and how to appropriately dispose of that. And so most of the time we really recommend to avoid GI decon through NG tubes, and charcoal is not going to do you any good anyway. And then finally, there's adjuncts that are out there. There's praladoxime or 2PAM, which essentially is going to help prevent the aging of organophosphates, which is important to some degree, 
but the overall efficacy is hotly debated, as is when the most optimal time to give pralidoxime actually is. If you're in the Ukraine and you've got nerve agents that are specifically weaponized, they are designed to age almost instantaneously. And so pralidoxime, which is trying to prevent that aging to allow that organophosphate to pop off your acetylcholinesterase is gonna be largely ineffective. And most of the organophosphates that people have that they're using on their farms or their backyard or whatever, either they're carbamates and not organophosphates, so you don't need uh, pralidoxime because they don't age, or they're an organophosphate that has a relatively slow time of aging. And so immediate access to pralidoxime is probably not required, right? Obviously, if they can't breathe and you can't dry them up, then you can put them on a vent. But do note that that can be challenging unless you like to intubate through foam. Non-invasive ventilation may be a little bit easier just to help with that positive pressure. And then vasopressors ultimately as needed for these guys. Cool. Um, Bill, I just wanted to check. Obviously, that case was about a child, but those observations, heart rate greater than 80 and a systolic blood pressure greater than 80, that's for an adult? That's for an adult. I mean, if you can get a kid's heart rate up to 80, that's fine as well. It, the literature doesn't as clearly, most of the texts don't really defined just for kids, but you can sort of extrapolate this from adults. If it's a normal perfusing heart rate and blood pressure, then that would be reasonable enough for a kid. Right. Thanks. So let's talk about when to transfer these guys. This one I think is pretty easy. If they're cholinergic, you transfer for the most part, right? Now that said, if there is a grading scale that's out there and patients can have a very mild cholinergic syndrome, and they might do okay, because ultimately it's a fairly short-lived process for the most part. And sometimes it could be just a carbamate that they have, which is much easier managed with atropine and things, or even just symptomatic care, right? But once you start really dipping into the atropine supply, you're going to run out pretty quick. And so the threshold to transfer should be very low for these individuals, right? Just for reference, this is one patient. This is a classic tox picture that's always shared around in different lectures. Who knows where the original time of it was, but this was an intentional organophosphate ingestion. And I don't even know how many vials of atropine are here, right? And so the chances are high that you will run out very quickly. I don't know how much atropine is stocked in a average rural ER, but you, you'll find out quick. <laughs> Not that much, I can tell right. you. Right. So yes, question in the chat that I see here is, does anyone have 2PAM in their rural hospital? Oh, that's this me is... just asking. I just, I suspect not many, yeah. or if anyone, I suspect they just have atropine. Does anyone have it? No. Yeah. So as part of the antidote stocking guideline, we have gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on 2PAM and whether or not we put it in a time critical category for this. And ultimately, I think if you look at the literature, in terms of its efficacy, if you're limited as to what you can fit in your toolbox, 2PAM doesn't, I don't think, have a high priority role, ultimately. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. So, Cool. All right. Well, let's go on to something more fun here. So case three. So we got a 23-year-old who is agitated, has a quote-unquote fever, and is altered after a recent change in an antidepressant. And per the flatmate, he might have also done some cocaine today. Just... By the way, <laughs> as you do, she shows up with the same sort of vitals that we've seen for a lot of folks already, fast heart rate, hypertensive, tachypnic, pulse oxing okay, but really hot, 
right? 40.5. And as you look at the patient, he's agitated, he's thrashing about, he's diaphoretic. His pupils are mid-range though. Uh, he's got marked hyperreflexia and when startled has significant clonus and does not have any cogwheeling on range of motion as best as you can determine. So what toxidrome are we talking about here? Ooh, oh, good. Oh, oh that's debate. awesome. Oh, ah, right. yes, that is the debate, right. isn't it, team? Is it NMS <laughs> or is it serotonergic syndrome? Who can remember the key yeah. distinguishing feature? Those bottom two lines give it to you. Yeah. You got it, Rosalie. Yep, absolutely. So clonus is a thing. And clonus is interesting. So there's two different types of clonuses. You can either have inducible clonus where you whack them on the patella and they have a four out of four reflex and then they start beating their leg. Or if you sharply dorsiflex their foot and then they want to beat down like this, right? That's inducible clonus. In folks that have really bad serotonin syndrome, they'll just have spontaneous clonus where if you clap your hands, they'll start doing that. And another sort of fun thing is that their hyperreflexia, for whatever reason, is going to be isolated to the lower extremities. I don't know why, no one knows why, but the upper extremities don't demonstrate the same degree of hyperreflexia. And so that's helpful because sometimes it can be really hard to get an upper extremity reflex, but you can certainly get lower extremity reflexes. And so that's nice. Cool. So serotonin syndrome, it is, right? And the key is there's an antidepressant, there's a recent change and cocaine likes to release some serotonin as well. So it's a fun mix to all things. Cool. One of the other sort of things that's important to note is there is a difference between someone who's being serotonergic versus serotonin syndrome. And the distinction of that, I think, is important when we're talking about transfer considerations. A serotonergic individual is someone who may have some slight features of this, right? There may be their hyperreflexic in the lower extremities, Maybe they're a little tachycardic, maybe their head's a little swimmy, but they're not febrile or hyperthermic. They're not hemodynamically unstable with that, right? And so there are different gradations in terms of severity. And it may be just fine to keep someone who's mildly serotonergic, but we'll talk about that in a little bit more. So the general approach to this one is to have a key index of suspicion there and to recognize it early. And then to do what you can to reduce that central catecholamine release, which is driving the hyperreactivity, the hyperreflexia, and the increased muscle contraction as it is. And there's a muscle tone that's going on there as well. There's these microfasciculations that are happening. And a lot of that is what's driving the critical hyperthermia, right? And so, again, I sound like a broken record, but benzos are going to be the name of the game for this, right? Because all of that is a way of turning everything down centrally here, right? Increasing all of that chloride that's flooding in to the inhibitory or to inhibit activation of your neurons, essentially, right? So, again, benzos titrated liberally, titrate to heart rate, titrate to agitation, titrate somewhat to that reflexia right? And your temperature should theoretically come down with that. If it doesn't come down with that, that's when you intubate and paralyze and just get on it. Cool. And then do hemodynamic support on top of that. The medications, benzos we talked about. And now there's the question about ciproheptadine, right? Ciproheptadine, everyone sort of reads the textbooks is always listed as a quote unquote antidote for serotonin syndrome, because really what it is, it's a serotonin receptor antagonist. And so it's going to bind those guys up so that all of that non-reuptaken serotonin doesn't have anywhere to land, right? It's unfortunate though, is that in theory it works, but in practice, it doesn't really seem to do a whole heck of a lot, 
right? And on top of that, it's only an oral formulation. So if you've got someone that's, you know, moderately serotonergic and they're really sort of altered and not really paying attention to you, but they're not critically unstable, it's going to be pretty hard to force a ciproheptadine pill down their gullets, right? And you certainly don't want to intubate someone just to throw ciproheptadine down an NG tube or anything like that. So the management here is just making sure that they're not given more serotonergic agents. Oh, speaking of which, don't give them more serotonergic agents, right? What not to do. So no Haldol, no droperidol, and then avoid other things like, and I don't know why you would be giving some of these things, but you know, let's say they come in and they got methemoglobinemia, but they're also on Zoloft and did like all of the cocaine in West New Zealand, right? Like, don't give that person methylene blue. I don't know what you're going to do for that person, but don't give them methylene blue. <laughs> so tramadol is the other sort of thing. And fentanyl, those are both serotonergic, so avoid those. And then linizolid, probably not anything in a rural environment you have to worry about, but that's an antibiotic that's really good for refractory pneumonias. It's an IV antibiotic, but it is heavily serotonergic. So that's sort of a fun thing to know. And then MDMA. Yeah, that's serotonergic as well. Probably should have put that on the list. Don't give them MDMA, please. Bad choice. Unless they just really want to party, in which case, I guess. <laughs> but then it's a risk-benefit discussion that you have to have with them. Cool. And then finally, don't transfer just to get ciproheptadine. So when you go to the decision arrow, I think I've sort of talked about this already. If it's a single agent, so if I back up a little bit, people can get serotonin syndrome with single agent SSRI or SNRI overdoses. If you think typically about Zoloft or Prozac or something like that, you can theoretically get a serotonin syndrome there. But uh, more often than not, if it's just a single agent and they're not mixing it with other serotonergic friends like MDMA, then it's going to be that they're more serotonergic. And provided it's not an extended release venlafaxine, which is terrible, you might even be able to manage them where you're at and give it, you know, 24, 48 hours and they may calm down at that point in time. But anything that's moderate to severe, anything that's a cross reaction because you're mixing things, that person runs the risk of becoming very sick and having recalcitrant hypothermia, hyperthermia rather, and hemodynamic instability. And beware long acting agents. Like I said, venlafaxine technically is an SNRI but it can cause terrible serotonin syndrome that lasts for days, in addition to sodium channel blockade, in addition to vasoplegia and all sorts of other really bad things. And then one final note, because I just learned that MAOIs are still a thing out here. Anyone that's on an MAOI that then takes a serotonergic agent, either in therapeutic use or in overdose, runs a very high risk of having a severe serotonin syndrome. And so there should be a very low threshold to transfer that individual as well. I can't remember the last time I saw an MAOI in the States, but it's interesting learning. We have fentanyl though, you know, and you guys don't have that either. So <laughs> No, we do. We have fentanyl. We yeah, do try well, to I learn mean, like, we we do try to learn what not to do from the States. Yeah, no, and we listen, uh, examples in spades these days. <laughs> so Cool. Any questions about serotonin syndrome? Ciproheptadine, very rarely available in Aotearoa. True. Good, because there's really no need for it. All right. Let's go into this one. I think we're doing good time-wise. Yeah. Let's have fun with this. Hmm. I think this is like the same 
yeah, same sort of presentation here, right? 23-year-old male, agitated, fever, altered mentation. After recent changes, antipsychotic. It's been strange over the past few days, now suddenly a whole lot worse and has all of the bad vital signs that you see here and has these exam findings of being poorly responsive and diaphoretic. And this is the key, marked stiffness in the extremities, significant cogwheeling when you can move the arm and incontinent of urine, right? So NMS, this is the big thing, right? And so the keys on this one is, as opposed to serotonin syndrome, which can be a rather rapid development, NMS is something that can come on rather slowly and does not in and of itself require overdose. And so that's one of the other sort of key features. And so it can be sort of insidious and can really come up and bite you on the keister if you're not really paying a lot of attention to it. And the management for this becomes very, very challenging. First step is to make sure you're ruling out infectious etiologies because that is key, especially with the way that this is sort of a progressive process. And this is where rural management is going to differ dramatically from other more urban sites because of just what is likely in your pharmacopoeia being much smaller, right? So the general goal is to reduce muscle tone because that is the 100% thing driving the hyperthermia and all of the associated acidemia and hemodynamic instability that comes from that. And so what you want to do is you want to reduce that temperature as quick as you can, right? How you do that is a subject of much debate in the community, right? But broken record time, benzodiazepines are a good place to start, right? And liberal usage of benzodiazepines, and I mean liberal usage, trying to get that heart rate down and to get that rigidity down. And because cogwheeling is a thing that you can feel and because their limbs are very rigid and you can feel that, you can follow your exam for this, right? But if they remain hyperthermic and they're getting in that sort of hemodynamic unstable state and your benzos aren't cutting it despite the fact that you've given them 120 milligrams of diazepam, then your next step is to paralyze them and just take it out of the equation, right? Take all of the muscles, make them go away, right? Don't use succinicholine, please. That makes things worse potentially. So a non-depolarizing agent, ideally. And if they're still hot at that point in time, then that's where an active cooling comes into play, sort of like your uh, meth fiend that's out in the desert in the middle of the summer that comes in really, 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 really hot. Do we have those out here? Desert bound meth fiends? No. Methamphetamine folks? No, I don't know. All right. So anyway, so active cooling and my favorite trick is to put them in a body bag and fill that body bag full of ice. I kid you not. It works well. The body bags don't leak and it cools them off real quick. But if all you have is ice packs, then you pack them in all of the foldy parts of the body. So that's that. One question, whether or not you can use dantrolene for these folks. So dantrolene is typically used for malignant hyperthermia that comes from anesthesia induction. And what's happening is you have this massive release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which causes all of the muscles to become hypermetabolic and contractile and it drives their temperature up through the roof and it's a surgical emergency, right? And so dantrolene, what it can do is it stops that calcium release in the muscles and can theoretically, you know, improve the tonic contraction and hyperrigidity of these patients, right? What it doesn't do is anything with dopamine, right? Or the dopamine receptors. And so theoretically, it's not a true antidote in that respect, but it may be helpful. And if you have an OR suite associated with your hospital, and they will have dantrolene because it's a requirement, I would imagine. And so you might be able to get it from them. 
Things that you probably won't have are dopamine agonists. So remember that this is a paucity of dopamine in the receptor that causes NMS. And so if you give them a dopamine agonist like bromocryptine or amantadine or carbidopa or levodopa, that might also be able to improve things. However, those are all oral and that becomes challenging. So, and then fun fact, this is the one toxidrome you can treat with electroconvulsive therapy. True, because it has to do with the dopamine paucity that's there. And so in hyperrecalcitrant cases, we have recommended this in the past and it's on the algorithm. So that's fun, but don't get out your car battery, please. <laughs> so, uh, Rosalie says active cooling can be a challenge in rule. Agreed. Yes, no, I agree. So that's where having a low threshold to paralyze these individuals is really going to be the name of the game if you have high-risk historical features such as them on some sort of neuroleptic or having a history of you know, schizophrenia or something like that with a recent medication change. Or also, if they were on Parkinson's agents and abruptly had a withdrawal of those. So if they abruptly ran out of their Parkinson's agents, then that can also cause NMS. Fun fact. Um, so don't forget to ask about that in someone that is, you know, weirdly hyperthermic and, you know, on the geriatric side and really, really stiff because they could certainly have NMS and that can be something that could be easily missed. Cool. Don't skip the infectious workup. I think we talked about that. There is recommendations out there that you give broad spectrum antibiotics empirically, specifically because of the potential for central infectious etiology, which can look very much like this. Don't give neuroleptics for agitation. And don't delay transfer if you suspect NMS, right? If they're critically ill and they're hyperthermic and they're hyperreflexic or diff, then that is a person that you are aggressive with and aggressive to transfer. Cool. Sarah's got a question. Tips for titrating diazepam, slowish onset and long duration of action could end up getting into trouble. It's a good question in terms of titrating. I will tell you that what's actually nice is diazepam has a reputation for being slow in onset, but when given IV, you're going to start to see the effects within five to 10 minutes. And it's very consistent with that, as opposed to lorazepam, which has a peak effect that can range from five minutes to 35 minutes and is very, quite variable in all of the pharmacodynamic literature that's out there. So diazepam does have a fairly predictable time of onset. And so it is actually the toxicologist's favorite benzodiazepine, not only because it has a predictable time of onset, but because of the long-acting metabolites that are there. Once you get that person under control, you keep them under control for a while, or at least you don't have the same degree of re recrudescence. And so midazolam is the other thing people like to reach for because it's pretty quick in onset, very quick in onset, right? But it's also pretty quick in offset. And when it turns off, it has no real major active metabolites that sort of ease you down. It's a light switch sort of thing, kind of like lorazepam. So that's why we prefer diazepam ultimately. And in terms of titrating strategies or tips for that, my thing is to typically start with 10 milligrams of diazepam and see how they do. And depending on their body size and the severity, if they have moderate improvement, then I'll give them another 10 in 10 minutes. But if it hasn't touched them, then I'll give them 20 and escalate that way. And if you're concerned that you're going to get them to the point that they're going to stop breathing, know that people can breathe through buttloads of benzodiazepines and do just fine. But if they're requiring that much benzo to calm them down, then if you're in a rural environment, you probably need to intubate them anyway. 
And so you're already going down that pathway. Cool. Yes, Mike has a good point here that if we're dealing with party drugs, manage depending on the toxidrome rather than the, what the chemical is that they think that they're taking. And that is absolutely key. Yes, absolutely. So toxidromes, again, they tell the story. And especially because as we know from Know Your Stuff, which is a cool service I like out of here, or Dance Safe, which is a European service, there's all kinds of fun stuff that will show up in those drugs. And in the US, fentanyl's making its way into all of those as well. So that's super cool. And then final question here is about intralipid. So we can talk about that. There is a whole resource that is out there called lipidrescue.org, which is a really nice one to look at. It has a whole algorithm for you with respect to the dosing strategies for lipid. They have it based off of last, but you can use lipid for all kinds of things, including calcium channel blockers or beta blockers such as propranolol. The amount that we typically had is we had a 500 ml bag of 20% lipid, and we had that in every ER just sitting on a shelf. It doesn't need to be refrigerated and it lasts forever. So everyone should have a 500 ml bag. That'll get you through two boluses and a short infusion if need be. Cool. So this is a person that has an intestinal ingestion. They've got a history of hypertension and depression, and they come in bradycardic, hypotensive, uh, and are alert and oriented right? They're hyperglycemic with no history of diabetes. Oh, and they've got a junctional bradycardia, right? So what is this? It's an antihypertensive overdose. There's nothing super exciting about that. The question is which antihypertensive overdose, right? So this is sort of a fun sort of basic thing that we like to do to like talk fellows is have them go through and list out the exam findings that you would find for the different types of antihypertensives. So your calcium channel blockers, your beta blockers, and your alpha-1 agonists, so like clonidine, right, or friends. So the things that differentiate all of them are bolded here. So calcium channel blockers, low heart rate, low blood pressure. That's obvious, right? The calcium channel blockers will have an intact mentation and also have a high blood glucose in the setting of no diabetes. And that has to do with the fact that your pancreas also has calcium channels that affect insulin release. And if they're hyperglycemic, that means that they are non-specifically blocking all of their calcium channels and are in for a very bad day. And so anytime someone comes with an antihypertensive overdose, you should always check a glucose uh, because it can be very helpful to A, figure out which antihypertensive it is and also figure out how bad it's going to potentially get. And when I'm talking hyperglycemic, I'm talking like double a normal glucose right? Not just like a piddly amount of it. So beta blockers are going to have a normal glucose, but their mentation is typically going to be depressed. And then alpha one agonists are going to have a normal blood glucose, a depressed mentation. They're going to be very, very sleepy, but easy to wake up with a purple nurple or a little poke on the chest, but their pupils will be meiotic, right? So it's a nice way of differentiating all of those. What do you do from a rural setting with these guys? You give them vasopressors. Right? There's all kinds of fancy things that you can do for them. But to be honest with you, if you look at the literature, uh, really high doses of vasopressors seem to be about as efficacious as all of the other fancy things that you can give. And so, especially if you've got a non-differentiated antihypertensive on these folks, rest assured, if you give them enough adrenaline, your blood pressure will get up and they will start to perfuse. Calcium channel blockers, and for a lesser extent, beta blockers, you can also play with high-dose insulin for these folks, which is 
When we say high dose, we mean very high dose. So one unit per kilogram as a bolus, and then one unit per kilogram per hour as an infusion. And so depending on your stockpile, if you've got a hundred kilo person that's coming in and you're going to pull out the insulin in the first 15 minutes, you're gone 200 units of insulin. So keep that in mind if you're going to go down this insulin route. If you don't have a huge supply of regular insulin, then this is when vasopressors are really super helpful in the rural setting. Cool. The central alpha agonists, those guys honestly generally do pretty good with supportive care. Sometimes they'll need some vasopressor. What's interesting is if you just park someone in the room and have them poke on them every 15 minutes or so, that typically is enough to get them to start breathing again and to wake up and you don't have to intubate them. Sometimes you do have to intubate them, but the noxious stimulants from having the ET tube between their cords may actually result in gnarly agitation. And so you may actually have to knock them down further after you intubate them. So a fun little trick that uh, alpha agonists like to play. Cool. A couple of quick caveats with calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. Don't be reassured by normal vital signs because extended release formulations can have delayed badness and really get you hard if you're not prepared for that. And don't forget to check sugar. I had a patient that I just got a call on yesterday where it was a verapamil overdose and they called me nine hours into the ingestion, but didn't happen to notice that four hours earlier, the person's sugar was already 23 and some change. And that's when they really needed to act, not nine hours later when the patient was already circling the drain, right? So look for that sugar, look for it early, right? And then glucagon, there was a question here. So this is one of those old hat things in toxicology that theoretically works for beta blockers, but no one has enough supply of glucagon to make it actually work well. So the initial dose of glucagon is five to 10 milligrams IV. Each little vial is usually one milligram. So it's a lot of little vials you have to break open. And then you give that same amount per hour in an infusion. And so even in urban hospitals, I've drained three hospitals worth of their glucagon supply treating a beta blocker overdose to the point that it was so costly and only marginally effective that I don't even do it. And most literature recommends against glucagon. So don't do it, just high dose. For beta blockers in particular, really high dose vasopressors can be helpful. And what's helpful to know is that there is no such thing as an upper limit for infusion rates of adrenaline or noradrenaline because systemically they're blocked. So you don't have to worry about the bad vasoconstriction that can come if you're giving this in stupid doses, unlike with like septic shock where they're not systemically vasoplegic and they can infarct an organ or something like that. Cool. Why hyperglyce? Oh, all right. So... Maybe ask, can I elaborate on like, hyperglycemia and calcium? Do we have time to talk about this? Because I'm happy to talk about this. Yeah. So the reason why hyperglycemia develops in calcium channel blocker overdoses, and again, there could be a whole lecture just on this, is that the specific channel that is blocked by calcium channel blockers is the L-type calcium channel. And that's on the cardiac myocytes, but it's also on the pancreas and is part of the receptor that allows for the release of insulin. And so when you start to see hyperglycemia, what you're seeing is you no longer have specific calcium channel blocker activity. You now have non-specific activity that's spread outward, right? And 
every calcium channel blocker in the body is starting to get bound. And so that's why hyperglycemia is bad. It's not bad because it's going to put them into DKA or anything like that. It is a surrogate marker for the severity of the total calcium channel blockade. So yeah, so it does not drive any metabolic complications. It's not in and of itself directly harmful, but it's a way of sniffing around for if things are going to get bad and risk stratifying that individual. And then it's also a fun way of seeing when their toxicity is waning because suddenly the 400 units an hour of insulin that they were getting that wasn't causing their blood sugar to tank will suddenly cause their blood sugar to tank. And that tells you that they're starting to wane on their effects sort of down the line. Cool. All right. Oh yeah, obligatory wrap-up and summary sort of thing. We've gone through all of this sort of stuff. So rural management, the primary focus, as you know, is triage and stabilization for these folks. Transfer consideration should be based on the toxidrome, its severity and the expected length of toxicity, knowing that mild ingestions for the most part are able to be kept there because they have a short duration of effect and can usually be easily managed. But long-acting agents may require transfer simply for bed capacity, if not severity of toxicity. Uh, extended release formulations, delayed release, release formulations can bite you unexpectedly, so be very cautious about those. Know your benzos, use your benzos, love your benzos. They are fabulous, and they play nicely with others. And don't forget to look for non-tox causes. So at any point in the game, National Poison Center is always here for you. We love to help. There's always someone that's around that is super eager to nerd out, even at 3 in the morning. Give us a call. 800 poison or if you have any questions that you want to wrap about with this talk in particular or anything else here's my email i like to talk about things uh feel free to reach out thanks bill thanks very much bill that was a great chat that is extremely useful and so bill we were talking briefly about having access to toxins and so i'm currently in the process because i'm currently just working in primary care and one of the other aspirations of toxins and the poison center is that not only will hospitals be able to access toxins easily with a personal login but also will primary care uh, you can obviously call them but it is sometimes quite useful to have that chat there so once I get some more info around that and Bill has put me through to the master Lucy I will communicate with you all and let you know how you can also get a login if you don't so thank you very very much Bill for your time this evening Welcome to New Zealand and look forward to all the exciting things that the National Poison Centre are doing in terms of updating the website and making it more relevant and integrating and working with rural health. It's exciting. So thanks for your time. Oh, thank you guys. I appreciate the opportunity and hope to be able to meet some folks in person and learn more about rural health out here in New Zealand. So thank you guys. Perfect. Thanks everyone. Have a good evening.